from my colleague, the Reverend Kristen Harper. I do not wish to breathe another breath if it is not shared with others. The breath of life is not mine alone. I brought myself to be with you, hoping that by inhaling the compassion and the courage and the hope found here, I can exhale the selfishness, the fear, the separateness I keep so close to my skin. I cannot live another moment, at least not one, of joy, unless you and I find our oneness somewhere among each other. Somewhere between the noise, somewhere between and within the silence of the next breath. Dr. Harper is the senior minister with the Unitarian Church in Barnstable, Massachusetts. She is the first woman of African descent to be settled at a Universalist Association congregation through our regular search process. And as a minister and as a woman of African descent, she is well-versed in the separateness and the fear of our society, our faith, and within each of us. And as a minister on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, she is close to where the pilgrims landed now just over 400 years ago one of those starting points in the colonization of our country as settled by entitled white folks. The breath of life is not mine alone, she reminds us. I cannot live another moment, at least not one of joy, unless you and I find our oneness somewhere among each other, somewhere between the noise, somewhere within the silence of the next breath. As we gather this weekend close to what is becoming more known as Indigenous Peoples Day, we take up the question of how to find each other, how to discover and encounter our relationship with one another and with those who've gone before and with those we do not know and yet we do in fact share this breath of life. We find one another because the breath of life is not marked territory and exclusive. We find one another because all life depends on it. All life depends on how we conduct ourselves within that mutuality. For our theme of cultivating relationship, I asked uh, last week, I asked for um, stories of what strengthens and supports us. Now this week, we go to one of those places, um, one of those kind of marked moments in history when humans sought to control others, the beginning of that, and the great harm that came from that and how it still impacts us today. There was so much in the news earlier this year of the mass graves and unaccounted for deaths of indigenous children at the residential schools, in particular this year, the ones found in Canada. It's led to more public awareness of the Canadian and United States efforts to destroy the lives and cultures of indigenous people on this continent. 
The news cycle may have moved on, but the story, the story has not. The story continues. And learning and addressing the impact of white colonization in this country is part of our justice work in Unitarian Universalism. And justice is essential to cultivating relationship. I want to thank, in particular, Dave Wyman for his work in the Doctrine of Discovery and in bringing this conversation to the congregation way back in 2011 and 12 and 13, and also in conversation with me in preparation for today. And also thank you to those who are part of our adult education program on Thursday when we started to get into this conversation about the doctrine of discovery. And as the UUA says, the doctrine of discovery is a principle of international law dating from the late 15th century. It has its roots in the mid 1400s of sanctioned conquest colonization, and exploitation of non-Christian territories and peoples. Hundreds of years of decisions and laws have continued from there right up into our own time that can be traced back to that doctrine that invalidated or ignored the rights and sovereignty of so many millions of people in the United States and around the world. There was that age of exploration that followed, you know, with Christopher Columbus being one of those main figures. Land that had people who were not Christian and not white European either was available to be discovered. And Spain and Portugal and France and England and so many others were all in that effort to claim the land and all of the resources in the name of the Christian God. The people on the land, it turns out, had no rights, really. And that push for conquest was reinforced by how often the indigenous folks died from diseases that were also brought by the Europeans because there wasn't any immunity. They were not wiped out entirely in all the areas, as is often taught in US history, but severely reduced. And the pilgrims brought this doctrine when they created a shining city on a hill in Boston. Europeans coming to the East Coast treated the land as property and pushed out the people who had been there for thousands of years. And folks such as Thomas Jefferson continued to make good use of the doctrine by including it in the founding of the country to pay off the debt, the sale of land going to pay off the debt of the states in the Revolutionary War. And in 1823, the Supreme Court ruled that that practice could continue. Indigenous people were to comply or be tamed or converted to being Christian and European and to US culture. Most heartbreakingly and forcibly enacted by the taking of children away from their families and their communities disrupting the lines of connection and tradition. And that continued into, into our own lifespans today. And I will tell you, I will tell you that the Unitarians were part of this federal government effort um, because the federal government in the, in the late 1800s turned to religious bodies to help with this 
kind of conversion of the people. Um, and the Unitarians managed schools in the late 1800s. Um, I think there were three in particular examples of that. And I will offer uh, just a glance at the records show that the Unitarians described the culture and the children no better than any other faith. Savages and heathens and unwashed and uncivilized and that they should be converted and would have better and healthier lives because they would be converted to the European and the US way of living. And that would be, include the elimination of their rituals, practices, language, clothing, how they wore their hair, their entire lives needed to be erased and replaced. The impact of the doctrine of discovery continues to flow down through the years and everywhere. But in our universalist work, we've been taking this up. Uh, we've been taking this up in the course of the last uh, little bit more than a decade or so. The need for uh, further attention uh, for the doctrine of discovery was brought to the attention of our association uh, leading up to the General Assembly in 2010, our annual gathering. And in 2010, we're preparing to have our General Assembly be in Arizona in 2012. And at that time, you could certainly see from afar off the immigration concerns and detention centers that were uh, led by folks such as Sheriff Arpaio. So there was an intentional choice and a vote taken at the 2010 General Assembly that we would go to Arizona if we were going to, only if we really truly focus on justice and focus on the work that partners that were local in Arizona, what they would ask us to do. We were trying to be accountable to folks who were there and receiving the brunt of this oppression and suffering. And those partners, those local partners, intentionally asked us to engage with, as an entire faith, the doctrine of discovery and to be in compliance and follow and support the UN work, United Nations work on indigenous people. And as a whole, our General Assembly did, in fact, do this. But the congregation, this congregation, also engaged with this work and studied the doctrine and its impact, um, how it's affected us in the long run and is inextricably interwoven into our history and our law. And this congregation added the land acknowledgement at that time as well that has been shared in every service since 2013. And further tried to follow through on that work by having partnerships and engagement with local indigenous leaders and groups. And this is good work. This has been continuing, this is good work. And in this moment, we realize we need to do more. What was discovered and shared this summer in the Canadian residential schools reveals how much this is still present and ongoing and current. The suffering and the legacy and that much needs to be addressed. And the scope the scope of the implications of this doctrine are vast, 
all of our law, all of our law has, has been affected by this. As well as our culture, as well as how we gather and see one another and don't think, you know, we're still learning to realize it's, you know, we have black, we have people of color, and oh, and the people who were here before the white folks arrived, they have been suffering even longer. How do you deal with the fact that we have this entire Louisiana purchase of land? When you talk about how to make amends, what does reconciliation look like? What, is, what might even be the idea of a reparation? How to conceive of this? It is enormous. But what people are doing and can do are telling the stories of being in those schools, of surviving that experience. People are claiming and reclaiming language and culture before any more of it disappears. As I was working on this, I realized, you know, what, what, would, be, what would be a meaningful shift? What would be a meaningful effort that, that a group such as this congregation could do? And I found one that came from um, Teen Vogue. If you have not read Teen Vogue, go find Teen Vogue, because they are speaking to our current issues and calling all of us to account. This summer, they had a report uh, article from uh, Ruth Hopkins of the Dakota on the residential schools and how this year had been found hundreds of unmarked graves of bodies of children as young as age three with no names and the challenge of identifying and trying to return those, those bodies home. And what, um, what Ms. Hopkins talks about is how the truth never stays hidden forever. But what she begins the article with is how white folks have been surprised again. Oh my gosh, this is happening. This is real. There is more of this to discover. Part of our collective response in the news cycles is, is a collective shock and horror and awe at at how deep and problematic this history is and how it keeps impacting us. That element of surprise, wow, here's another story. How could this happen? But she also points out, guess who wasn't surprised? Guess who's never been surprised? So I wanna offer that one of the best pieces of work that we could do is if white folks wouldn't be surprised. Because that surprise carries denial of the realities of the existence of this struggle and this hardship that has been happening for so long and so widespread. That we would accept the existence of oppression, generational oppression, it would be a major step just to say, we can be shocked, 
and horrified, but let's not be surprised anymore. Because that would help us then equip ourselves, recognize the kind of recognition and listening and authenticity that would help us move forward and say, this is real, now what do we do? And then draw on our strengths and our abilities and what we want to see to move forward. The goal, this goal of this work is not to make the system of oppression disappear. I'm afraid that's not going to happen for a very, very long time. Children taken from families is generational loss, is trauma over ages and ages. And that won't be addressed until we remove the source of how it functions in our society as the basis of law and land, and that generations exist beyond that removal. Then maybe that work will be done. But we, we in this moment, can move forward by learning and listening and grieving and owning responsibility as beneficiaries of the system. Build affirming relationships on mutual respect. Remember our core principles of the power of love and respect. And that acknowledging humanity, that by itself can be a radical act. Seeing each other as fully real and human and sovereign creatures, that is something. When the work is vast, small acts of love and respect are countercultural. And those small acts add up to become more visible and more manifest, and they make a difference to those who are trying to recover and cultivate and care for the indigenous communities. It's not for any one of us to carry the scope of this doctrine and its terrible impact, but it is for us to listen and attend and recognize and learn as much as we can handle. From Kristen Harper. The breath of life is not mine alone. I brought myself to be with you, hoping that by inhaling the compassion and the courage and the hope found here, I can exhale the fear, the selfishness and separateness I keep so close to my skin. Let us keep bringing ourselves to be with you and you and you and the breath of life in that exercise of that breathing that is for all. Let us go forth. <laughs>